Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast and Finding Genius Foundation. I have Dr. Will Cole. He's a leading functional medicine expert. He consults with people around the world through webcam. He's locally in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's been named one of the top 50 functional medicine and integrative doctors in the nation. And he specializes in uh, clinically investigating what are the underlying factors of chronic disease and customizing a functional medicine approach for thyroid, autoimmune, hormonal imbalances, digestive disorders, et cetera. So, Will, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and I guess we're going to focus more on fasting, or do you want to talk about your overall approach? Wherever you want to go with this is fine with me. I mean, I am excited about the research around fasting and something that I've been diving deep into over the course of my career, but more point, more specifically, more concentratedly over the past year in, in researching for this book. So tell me about your approach in general, and then we'll focus in more sure. on the fasting element. So what got you into functional medicine in the first place? Did you have your own problem, or how did it start? I had a family history of autoimmune conditions on both sides of my family, and I saw what people with autoimmunity specifically were up against in the standard way of doing things, and they were left to fend for themselves in many ways. So early on, my passion and my heart was for them, and then when I really started digging into the huge gap of people struggling with autoimmunity left to fend for themselves, so I graduated school knowing that I wanted to get to practice functional medicine. I, there was a guy who had gone to my school. He was older than I was. He was one of the pioneers of functional medicine. His name is Datis Karazian. He's still today an instructor for the Institute for Functional Medicine. And that's who trained all the doctors at the Cleveland Clinic's Functional Medicine Center and has trained myself. So I, that's initially how I heard specifically about functional medicine instead of it just being this larger, you know, alternative health or complementary medicine or you know, even conventional medicine, I, I knew I wanted to be home, honed in in functional medicine by the time I graduated. So I started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over a decade ago. So my whole career, I've been consulting people via webcam, like we're talking right now. And from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., that's been my main focus is, is we drop ship labs wherever they're at in the world. And then we're providing them a functional medicine insight and a perspective on the components and understanding the components of why they feel the way that they do. So we deal a lot with um, people with autoimmunity, and that can manifest in many different ways. There's over 100 different autoimmune diseases, and then an additional 40 above that 100 that at least have an autoimmune component. So we deal a lot with uh, inflammatory bowel issues like Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, even IBS issues that aren't uh, diagnosed as being autoimmune, but some sort of irritable bowel syndrome, uh, chronic constipation, chronic diarrhea, bloating, acid reflux, SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, histamine intolerances, salicylate intolerances, all these other food reactivities in the digestive section of health. And then we do a lot with brain issues as well, things like anxiety and depression and fatigue and brain fog endocrine problems. So whether they be autoimmune endocrine problems like Hashimoto's disease, 
autoimmune thyroid problems or things like adenomyosis or endometriosis, other, you know, autoimmune component of, with female hormones or non-autoimmune hormonal problems like estrogen dominance or low testosterone, things like this. Um, and then obviously the body's so brilliantly interconnected. Typically it's a confluence of those factors is that people will come in for one area, maybe it's fatigue, maybe it's weight loss resistance, maybe it's you know, something like this, but they don't really realize all the other components are at play. Understanding, looking at the gut health, looking at the brain health, looking at all the interconnectedness of all the systems of the body. So that's my main focus. So I, I love it. It's, it's a lot of hard work, but it's very rewarding. When you start seeing people's health restored, it is a very profoundly special time to see that reclaimed and see that light come back in their life and having them having agency over their health, which by no means are quick fixes for these people. This is a journey. So I'm with them for typically a year to two years working on these things. But it's an amazing thing to see people that are- All right, so what, what are some examples, you know, interesting stories that stick out at you? So many, I mean, just let me think of one. There was a patient, she was a retired school teacher and she came in with some different autoimmune issues. She had what her doctor said, it looked autoimmune. She had debilitating fatigue. She had runaway anxiety, inexplicable um, panic attacks. She had chronic inflammation. She had digestive problems and she was not doing well. Her quality of life was in the gutter. And we ran labs. We saw a confluence of different factors. We looked at, we found chronic mold issue, reacted up, reactivated Epstein-Barr virus. I mean, 95% of the population has antibodies Epstein-Barr virus. So seeing antibodies to EBV or any other virus is not a rarity, but reactivated early antigen, seeing the Quest or LabCorp, calling it an active viral infection. That was a component to her case. She had Lyme disease and uh, co-infections to Lyme. So, so we're talking about multiple different pathogens that were at play for her. And of course, that stuff was triggering and perpetuating the autoimmunity against her nervous system, her actual brain tissue. So she wasn't diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, but she was somewhere on this autoimmune inflammation spectrum where she had positive antibodies, positive autoimmune markers on different conventional and Cyrex labs, which is a, a lab that we use in functional medicine, but conventional labs, we saw positive ANA and other positive markers as well. So all that to say is she, when she started feeling better over the course of months with her, we have six months in maybe, and she had a, she was a different person. She had, she was, had a vibrancy. She had a quality of life that she had the energy to do the things that she loved. And she was, her doctor was able to reduce and eliminate different medications because she was getting healthier and healthy people don't need all these medications. And something that sticks, that's something that she said that stuck out from with, to me, but she said, I was planning my funeral when I met you. And now I'm planning vacations with my grandkids. And that oh, to wow. me just says it all. I mean, that's just everything. That's the sentiment of, of what I want all people to experience people that were counted out as you're just getting older, or you're just, uh, you know, you're, you're just depressed. Here's an antidepressant, or they are labeled as hypochondriacs, or they labeled as they are delegitimized systematically in so many different ways, people with autoimmunity and different chronic illnesses to give them answers, A, but to give them tools to overcome these problems is such an awesome experience. What does your protocol look like when you talk to somebody? What do you ask them to tell you? And you know, how do you go about uh, figuring out what's going on? With well, it starts with the health history. And I think the health history, it's the science and the art of what I do. The science is being thorough and looking at past labs they've had done and 
be and looking at all the application forms, which kind of are pointers for me to see what labs are the most relevant, what they're going through, understanding the combination of factors that need to be in consideration. But the art of it is just as important. So that's when I cannot be on autopilot. I can't be a computer that's going through the motions. I have to really hold space for these people that are going through really heavy things and f- hear the space in between words, if, if that makes sense. So just like when someone says something and they're speaking, you have to understand how where they're even coming from even on the things they can't say or the things they don't even know consciously, this is what's going on and being extremely curious and following up and digging deeper and digging deeper and digging deeper and being relentless in that fact because people are meeting me for the first time via Zoom or you know via some webcam interface uh, and they're going through some really heavy things and they're not feeling well. Uh, so there's a wall up and a lot of them are burnt out as far as trying all this stuff and trying to figure things out and not getting answers. So I, you have to be fully present there to really give them everything that they need to not be redundant or add to their pile of things that they've tried before. So health history is profoundly important. And then from there, the health history will tell us, okay, what labs are the most relevant? So we're being comprehensive with labs, but not running labs for the sake of it. It's really being thoughtful about that. And then we get multiple labs perspective from their vantage point. What's going on here? Like what are the different perspectives from the lab and put them all in a context. And then that a lot of it is prioritizing and organizing things that are at play with their, within their physiology. So for example, like we're looking at endocrine problems and hormonal problems with many people, but then we're dealing with all these autoimmune issues and chronic infections and like physiological stressors that are at play too. And, and mental, emotional stressors with traumas and past traumas that are perpetuating inflammation and triggering autoimmune problems too. So we're looking at all that stress. So then you could, if you just looked at the hormones, for example, you would see, okay, well, the hormones are low or uh, why are they all low? And and you could go and treat all the low progesterone, low estrogen, low thyroid, low testosterone. You could go and treat that. But then we can ask the question, well, why are those hormones all low to begin with? So a very common pattern that I see with patients are their bodies in such a sympathetic fight or flight tra- trauma bearing state that they are not in a parasympathetic resting, digesting hormone balance state where you could go and exogenously give them hormone replacement therapy. You could get their numbers looking great on a lab probably. And I see this all the time. They're not going to feel any better. They may have a honeymoon period. Yeah. Because it's. Why, Why would that be? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the finding genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Because there, there's a reason why the hormones are the way that they are, and the hormones are just responding to the stress that the body's under. And until you deal with the stress that the body's under, it's going to be a temporary relief at best. So I see people that are like, oh, yeah, I felt good for a little bit with that testosterone, I felt a little bit good, I felt good with the estrogen, progesterone, but the amount of stress that their body's under they are like 
scratching the surface of the iceberg of what's going at play here. So their hormones aren't the full breadth of why they feel the way that they do. Otherwise they would feel amazing when you get those labs, their hormones looking really great on a lab. That is different than the postmenopausal woman that does not have immune stress and trauma and inflammatory problems and chronic infections. If she doesn't have that and she has low estrogen, low progesterone, low testosterone, you get those up, she's probably going to feel pretty dang good with the hormone replacement therapy because that's what she needs. So the point is you can't just look at a number on a lab and say, well, I that lab's low or high and I want to get that in the optimum range. We have to go bigger and broader and say, well, why are these labs there in the first place? So if you have a lady in, in her thirties and she's dealing with this trauma and stress and chronic infections, et cetera, and her hormones are in the gutter, it's really not going to do her much good to just go and manipulate her, her numbers in a lab and get her progesterone and estrogen high. It's still, let's, let's deal with what's causing the hormones to be so low in the first place. So the body can actually speak to itself and have proper hormone balance. So it's making well, sense for, of all uh, that stuff. Yeah, for which conditions does it tend to, to be a, a limited set of answers? I know everything's individualized, I know. But are there any conditions you could speak to that tend to have typical keystone problems that are really causing them? Yeah, I'm, chronic fatigue syndrome is a major one. And if you look at diagnoses like chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia, it's like these are diagnoses for describing how they're feeling. We could have a hundred cases of CFS, a, uh, CFS, we could have a hundred cases of fibromyalgia, but what's going on underneath the surface. And that's that intermixed like confluence of uh, like a collision in a way of their endocrine system and their immune system. And looking at both of those factors and looking at chronic infections that really drive up the inflammatory response and inflammation is a product of the immune system and how that stress, that inflammatory traumatic stress that their gut and their immune system is going under the, the the role that's playing in their endocrine system. So those are two examples, but I would honestly say anybody on this larger autoimmune inflammation spectrum could be, that could be a component to their case because there's over a hundred different autoimmune diseases. And there's a 40 above that 100 that have an autoimmune component. So we're dealing with a lot of different ones. It's not just things like chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia, but anybody with digestive problems, I see that a lot where their hormones are in the gutter, but you have all these other chronic infections that are perpetuating that. So people with ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, IBS, people with neurological autoimmunity, whether they have antibodies to nervous system tissue, or they're diagnosed with things like MS. Um, people that have autoimmune thyroid issues. I see that a lot people with endometriosis, adenomyosis. I mean, what you could, you'll have low thyroid hormones. You'll have abnormal estrogen and progesterone and testosterone with these cases, but that those hormones are just a response to the autoimmune attack against the endocrine system. So it's understanding the context of the numbers on the lab. So it's, it's so interesting and fascinating and never gets old to me, but it's just understanding the order of operations and how these things need to be sorted out. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, so what about in terms of low testosterone, you know, which for a lot of men is common? Is there a subset of underlying reasons for that, for instance? You know, and then I want to ask you about, you know, maybe low estrogen or other, other, other conditions. Sure. Yeah. I mean, low testosterone, there's a lot of potential. Uh, is the body under some sort of stress? Is that what's suppressing that? Um, that's and then asking, well, what is that stressor? So for me, uh, that's low testosterone is like a check engine light. You check engine light comes on in the car, but why? 
I mean, there's a lot of reasons why the check engine light can be on. So it's not as easy as saying low testosterone, give exogenous testosterone, and then I'll solve all your problems. It works sometimes. And you have guys, their, ga their games are changed when you get their testosterone levels up when they're on testosterone cream or pellets or something like that, or injections. But what, for, what happens to the myriad of different guys that don't feel any better whenever they get their testosterone levels up? And I see this all the time too. It's like, okay, your numbers look great on a lab. Their hormone replacement doctor or PCP or whoever prescribed the testosterone with good intentions, right? They saw low testosterone and give, give testosterone. But then when you get the levels looking great, but you still feel lousy, there's something else going on here. So at that point, we have to really ask the question and go upstream, go to the core. So it's any number of possibilities, but looking at the looking at the immune system, looking at chronic infections, looking at other metabolic issues too. I mean, one of the leading causes specific to low testosterone is metabolic syndrome, is insulin resistance. Giving exogenous testosterone levels, testosterone therapy to get your levels up is not going to fix the, fix the metabolic syndrome. So you're basically just supplying your body with something that it's not even utilizing properly because it's a complete metabolic syndrome. So meaning that there's some insulin resistance spectrum issue going on here, whether that's mild metabolic syndrome, syndrome X, whether that's prediabetes, whether that's type two diabetes, everything in between those things, uh, that's going to, in many ways, over aromatize testosterone to estrogen levels. So you're going to, your free testosterone is not going to be ideal for long, or these guys are taking these exogenous testosterones and they're not testing, they're not retesting and seeing where their levels are at. And they have super high levels of testosterone, but it's not getting in the cell. And you're basically bombarding the uh, testosterone receptor sites, and it can create resistance patterns similar to insulin resistance here, because you're basically past that honeymoon period with the hormone replacement therapy, you're going to get stuck at a wall where you're not going to be utilizing what you're taking. So you have to deal in that case is using that as an example to deal with the metabolic syndrome, the insulin resistance that's causing the conversion of testosterone to estrogen. And that's not everybody, but that's, these are the questions that need to be asked instead of just looking at a low testosterone, making them look great. And then it, your problems are all going to be solved. If you're one of those lucky ones where it is solved like that, then that's awesome. But there are many, many people that that is not solved. And the body is a very brilliant interconnected chemistry lab. And it's not like a, a calculator where you see a deficiency, you bring it up and all your problems are solved. It's, it's there's a lot more complexities than that. So is the root of, of therapy uh, changes to diet? Like if there was one thing, would it be that? Or what would it be for, well, know, it especially for people there. that don't want to just take medication? Yeah, it starts there. It's not the only component of it, but it's a foundational tool because every food we eat, either feeds inflammation or, or fights it. It brings, it's an immunomodulator in some way. So it's definitely a central part of it. And then that's the question, okay, what's the right way to eat for me? Because I could name any healthy food under the sun and, and what works for one person isn't necessarily the best way for the next person. So like, for example, eggs, I have people that have, that do great with eggs. It's like wonderful, like nutrient dense food that I love. It has choline and omega fats and B vitamins, other B vitamins in the yolk has clean protein, all that awesome stuff. Then some people have egg sensitivities to, you know, albumin and it's not going to work for them. Same with, uh, even like vegetables that are like super, uh, nutrient dense, well, like sulforaphane, which supports the detox pathways and supporting methylation, like onions or garlic or, um, Brussels sprouts or asparagus work great for some people. Some people have FODMAP intolerance where those fermentable sugars in those foods cause bloating and distension and pain. 
I could go on and on. Every food under the sun works great for one person and not for other for a myriad of different reasons, not just food sensitivities, but biomechanical components to it or things going on in their gut that's overconsuming it for like for FODMAP, for example. So food is a central part, but the, the question is what foods does your body love and what foods does your body not love? And then what, how, what's the most targeted nutritional medicine that is relevant to your labs? So if I see something that is, for example, if someone has low T3, low thyroid hormone, but you, you, their T4 looks fine, their main thyroid hormone looks fine, their TSH looks fine, but we run a full thyroid panel and you see their, their low T3, uh, their, their low total T3, and their low free T3 are low. And that's either functionally low or, or lab low. Well, 80% of that conversion happens in the liver and 20% happens in the gut. Um, so you have to take liver health and gut health into play in there too. But a lot of foods that will help with conversion of the thyroid hormone is selenium rich foods because the liver makes an enzyme called five prime deiodinase, which basically takes off one of the iodine molecules of T4, making it into T3 and activates the thyroid hormone. So we work on selenium rich foods or and sulfur rich foods that I mentioned too, and a lot of gut supporting foods and liver supporting foods to really get the body to convert its own T3. So instead of me just giving, uh, you know, an armor thyroid or a nature thyroid or a cytomel or some sort of exogenous T3, I want to get the body to do it itself. And you can give your body the raw materials that it uses to convert T4 to T3 in a really specific way to that case. Does that always do everything that we need to? No. And that's why I say it starts with food. It's going to move the needle for you in the right direction. The question is when we retest, is it like 50% better? Is it 40% better or is it 100% better? If it's 50% better, okay, cool. Nutrition, move the needle in a positive direction, but you're not exactly where you need to be. So at that point, then maybe there is a place for exogenous T3, for example, or maybe supplementing with a higher doses of these nutrients where you're not getting it through foods solely, but it starts with food. And then from there, you can really target these things beyond food that whatever is clinically relevant. So you mentioned a, a new book that you're working on. What's it about? And let's focus on that for a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So it's called intuitive fasting. So fasting is a, are different protocols of fasting are things that I've used clinically for the past decade and something I've used in my own life for the past 20 years. Um, there's a lot of research around it and it's really um, amazing to see the conversation around fasting now. And so I, I wanted to write the book. I knew what I wanted to, I knew that I wanted to write a book for a while on fasting because I talked about the concept of time restricted feeding and intermittent fasting and its benefits in both of my previous books in Ketotarian. I talked about intermittent fasting, this whole section on it. Uh, in the inflammation spectrum, I talked about fasting for two different reasons. One, beta hydroxybutyrate ketone body is produced with a clean ketogenic diet and fasting. So that's what was this discussion in ketotarian and then inflammation spectrum. I talked about the anti-inflammatory benefits of fasting. So I wanted a deeper dive in this book where it was just a deep dive in intermittent fasting, but as its name implies intuitive fasting, I wanted a approach that I find really works well for people sustainably, where it isn't this arduous, punitive, dogmatic, obsessive thing. It's just born out of getting cues from your body and knowing what your body loves and what your body hates and, and ebbing and flowing these vacillating eating and fasting windows to maintain and to first build metabolic flexibility. So people mostly are in this sugar burning mode with various degrees of them. They're, you know, they're hangry, they're fatigued, they have weight loss resistance, they have low testosterone, they have 
all these uh, metabolic issues and their blood sugars all over the place. They're in various forms of predominantly sugar burning mode, meaning their, their body's providing their fuel through sugar, through the foods that they're eating is breaking down into sugar primarily, which is fine. We all are born partly there, but the goal is metabolic flexibility. So we're also all born fat adapted too, as babies too. And we all burn ketones to some degree. Uh, so I want people to gain that flexibility again, that they, we had as babies, but we lost over time eating refined carbohydrates in this modern Western diet. Diet. So through these vacillating fasting and eating windows, and I highlight different types of fasts over different weeks to gain that metabolic flexibility again. So it's a great way to become more fat adapted, more keto adapted, and it is, but it's done intuitively. So women can do modify it around their cycles or guys can modify it around a heavy workout. And I'm teaching how to really learn how to leverage the benefits of flexible intermittent fasting without falling prey to like too much fasting that's not right for your body uh, or strategies that I find that don't work long-term for people. So it's a, it's an exploration of that. And um, so the first half of the book is how to do it and the science around it and the plan that's a four week plan that I want people to cycle through. And I paired the intuitive fasting plan with a ketotarian diet, which is my made up word, but it's a mostly plant-based clean ketogenic diet, which works synergistically with uh, fasting because it's, they're both supporting beta hydroxybutyrate. They're both increasing that ketone that I want people to at least be cyclically in ketosis because that's that fourth macronutrient that researchers refer to it as beta hydroxybutyrate as this fuel for our body. So we have proteins, fats, carbs, and ketone bodies. So it's a signaling molecule. It's a way to lower neuroinflammation, systemic inflammation. It increases autophagy or cellular recycling. So all these things that I know in patients that I want to support, I put it, I made sure I put into the book so people can really learn how to have agency over their health, which is really what I'm an advocate for is people having tools to equip their, to, to integrate into their life, to, to better their life. Uh, so that's what the book's about. Well, in terms of fasting windows, a lot of people talk about them. Um, what does a good fasting window look like? 12 hours, 16 hours, and what are the effects at various time lengths that you've observed? So the four weeks, I start off with a 12-12, which is underrated in many ways. It's just, it's so simple, but many people aren't doing it because they're eating too late at night. So I paired week one, which is a reset week with just a clean ketogenic diet with a 12-12. So let's just say like 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., something like that, or 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Or if you know you're going to be out late at night, you can do like a 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. if you want to randomly. I wouldn't do that all the time. I, the goal is to have, have at least two hours before bed uh, without eating. So finish eating two hours before bed at least. So it's allowing your body to fast through the night until it breaks the fast at breakfast. But it's really been shown to give the gut a break, to reset it's also been shown to support gentle metabol metabolic flexibility because we're not just supporting metabolic flexibility while we are fasting through the night. We are also supporting it through the foods that we're eating. So eating a clean, mostly plant-based ketogenic diet, um, basically a pescatarian ketogenic diet where it's high fat, moderate protein, low carb. So because of the moderate protein, we're really modulating mTOR, the mammalian target of rapamycin, that pathway that's really can mimic a lot of the benefits of fasting. And that's what the clean ketogenic diet that's mostly plant-based like that is mimicking fasting in many ways. So we are supporting fasting even when we're not fasting in week one. And then week two, it's what you kind of said. It was about, a, it's a, about an 18 hour fast. So let's just say 12 to 6 PM, 
that's your eating window. That's a six hour eating window, which would make it an 18 hour fast. You're fasting through the night until you break your fast at lunch the next day. So that's week two. And that's, we're really working on cardiometabolic factors there. We're talking, I talk a lot about the research around lipids and cardiovascular markers and insulin resistance and inflammation markers. Cause that's what a lot of the studies are looking at is basically that 16 to 18 hour fast. That's what we're doing in week two in the metabolic recharge week. Week three is the deepest fast where it is an almost OMAD approach. OMAD is an acronym that stands for one meal a day. So it's basically a 22 to two. I call it an almost OMAD because there's studies that show there's a pathway called the PKR pathway that when people are eating so much food in like a one hour period, even if it's a clean food, like the bolus of food that you're eating in such a short eating window with like an OMAD approach can increase what the studies call metaflammation, which is just their term for systemic inflammation. So an almost OMAD approach mitigates that by having basically one and a half meal, but you're starting, you're breaking your fast with a gentle break of fast meal that I talk about in the book, just basically soups and stews, something soft, that's easy to transition your body from fasting to eating, because your villi and your gut are going to be short cortisol is going to be a little bit higher because of the hormetic effect of the fast. And basically, you'll be really insulin sensitive. So I want the a nice segue back into eating with the break of fast meal, I teach how to do that. And then you can have your normal meal. We're doing that in week three, every other day. So you go almost OMAD 12, 12, almost OMAD 12, 12, almost OMAD 12, 12, so far, so on and so forth throughout week three. That's the actual uh, renew this. We're working on autophagy and stem cell activation, supporting that and the longevity benefits of fasting in week three. And then in week four, we're loosening back up. We're going back to 12, 12. So I see it as like this uh, expanding, contracting, almost like yoga for your metabolism that I want people to cycle through as many weeks as they need to. And they're checking in every four weeks with a quiz that I adapted from questions that I ask patients to really see how they're doing, get be their own end of one experiment over that time. If people were only willing to, or for some reason could only do one thing, either eat in the way you're talking about or do the fasting, which one do you think would be better for them? Or, you know, which one's more tolerant to, to screw ups? Well, I would say food. I would say food. You should do one thing because I, I, as a functional medicine practitioner, I'm not an advocate to fast your way out of a poor diet. So I think food comes first, but the, the fasting windows, it's quite fascinating because I say that, but then I throughout the whole book, I'm citing studies that show you don't really have to change your diet much, but if you eat specific windows, because researchers had to do that, they had to show does fasting or time restricted feeding, which is a type of fasting, does this hold on its own? If you don't change your diet and you just eat in specific windows, if all calories are the same, if you eat pretty much the same, you have the control group and the fasting group and the time restricted feeding window group, the fasting group actually see time and time again in studies, they saw better markers. So there's studies to show that food eating window is profoundly important, but I just know it's exponentially amplified when you actually pair that with changing the food. So if I had to pick, I would say, I am not an advocate for fasting your way out of a poor diet, just focus on the real food there and eat in bigger windows if you're not there yet. And actually, I had that conversation throughout the book, I actually say, look, if you're in week one, and you 1212 is where you're at, stick there for like two or three or four weeks, like just do that first, this, this can be self paced. And if you're not there yet, this has to be a sustainable change. And this should not be this fast paced thing where if you're not 
you need to meet your body where you're at and meet your headspace where you're at too. And I'd rather have someone lead in, lean into it, even if it's arduously slow, lean into it, but it's sustainable. That's better than somebody crashing through it and it's not, it's short lived. So it's all about the, the, the heart behind it and the why behind it. And if they get that, their head in the heart, right. Even if it takes longer, that's better, better because it's going to be more sustainable and you're going to actually see the changes on labs and in your quality of life. But what's one of the hardest things about your protocol is it to jump from, let's say, uh, you know, an 18 hour non-eating window to a 22 or, you know, where do people get gummed up on yeah, this? That's a good question. I could see, look, I could see week one being tough for some people because if you're cutting carbs, carbohydrates down to like less than 55 grams of carbs and you're getting it through vegetables and low fructose fruits. And I could see week one, even though it's not a deep fast, I could see the changes of the foods to like a clean ketogenic diet, I could see that being tough. And that's why I say, okay, if you need to repeat week one, do it. But as far as like the time restricted feeding component of it, I would probably say the week two to three, like you said, I would say that the almost OMAD week, even though it's almost, it's um, every other day, it still could be probably, it still could be something new. Uh, and some problematic as far as their mental attitude towards it, they have to like wrap their minds around it. Because there's so much like food comes with a lot of baggage sometimes and people eat because they're bored, they eat because they're stressed, they eat because it's just habitual, eat because of like, it's their so way to socialize with people. So there's a, that's a, a big calibrate recalibration that I'm having people do in that week three. Um, so I have in that chapter specifically, I have these metaphysical meals, which basically just my acts of mindfulness that I want people to integrate during that week three, because I realized there could be a lot of like, uh, what am I supposed to do when I'm not eating? So journaling and meditation or getting out in nature or something like that's like calming the mind is important. So I would say the hardest week is probably week three, even though it's just a week and it's every other day. But I would, if you had to pick one, that would probably be the sticking point. Well, what do people have problems with, again, with the fasting? Is that they're just hungry and they're like, damn, I'm hungry? Or is it more mental? And you could you can get rid of the hunger if you have hunger pangs? Like, you know, in terms of fasting specifically, what's the most difficult thing about it? It's a lot of it's mental because none of it's long. It's, we're talking about flexible fasting here. There's nothing. We're not doing like a 10 day water fast. This is all mostly it's mental. So of course I want to deal with the logistical non-mental things like making sure you're well hydrated and making sure your electrolytes are on point. And I teach how to do that. Like if you saw these like core fundamental things, then the rest of it is mental. And that's why dealing with stress and making sure you're sleeping properly and make sure you're setting yourself up for success is so important. But that's all, that's all. I mean, just because I say it's mental doesn't mean it's any less real. It's that's why I have to like really walk through the reader, just like I do with my patients to say, okay, this is normal, or we're going to get through this. And when they come on the other side, it's really cool to see someone that actually didn't think they could do it. They actually feel so much better. And their inflammations are so much lower, they have more energy, they've lost weight, all these things that they were stuck at this really insurmountable plateau, be able to push past that. And at that point, there's this catalyst that happens where it isn't this thing because they read in a book or they heard it on a podcast or they heard, you know, they heard Dr. Cole say to do it. It was that, no, I love feeling better more than I missed that thing I thought that I missed. And even if they go and play around with it, this is intuitive fasting. So I want people to see where they feel the best and feel that rhythm in their body. So, hey, maybe some, some reader knows they felt better with that almost OMAD week. I know some people that thrive with that week three. They'll do more of that and less of the other fasts. Or some people do great with the just the 12-12. Some people do great with the 18. There's all these different 
tools that people can learn about their body and grow in intuition. Because that's ultimately the end goal is to find what I call in the book food peace, to not be bound by this thing that they have to do this sort of punitive thing. It's just like, no, I feel better here. I'm going to do more of that. I feel really lousy here. I'm going to do less of that and start to grow in intuition on what their body really loves. And we're all different. And that's the heart of functional medicine. It's that bioindividuality. And I want people to explore that for themselves. But when they gain metabolic flexibility, that's fertile ground for intuition. So it's really nice and fluffy and vapid for me to say, well, it's intuitive fasting. Or you see people on social media will say, I'm an intuitive eater. What the heck does that even mean? If someone's metabolically inflexible, is it hangry or is it intuition? Is it hormone imbalance or intuition? Is it blood sugar imbalance or intuition? Because stress eating is not intuitive eating. Emotional eating is not intuitive eating. So I want on the other side of that, when they gain metabolic flexibility to actually have an authentic intuitive eating. But when you're bound in sugar burning mode, you're not going to be able to discern what true and authentic uh, intuition is because you're going to be bound by cravings and hangriness and all of these things that are physiological. It's like proverbial noise on a physiological level. But when you start to calm the noise in the body and start to really root yourself in your body and know, okay, I'm hungry now. I'm eating until, I'm eating until satiety. I'm eating, when I'm eating these delicious food that actually gives my body a lot of raw material to, to build nutrition then you can actually know and grow an intuition and people at the end of it will be able to, they'll do more of some things and less of other because we're all different. Uh, so it's a really cool experience to see that catalyst from program to just integrating, feeling great in your life. And that, that happens as people lean into these, these protocols. Very good. And well, you said you do this, you know, by remotely webcam, et cetera. So yeah. where can you help people and where can't you, is, is there anywhere that someone can't work with you if they live? No. Yeah. I mean, it could be anywhere because we're not replacing their primary care physician. So they're still seeing their local primary care physician or any specialist they have. We're not replacing that. We are just providing functional medicine perspective and guidance and coaching wherever they're at. So we're a telehealth clinic and, you know, sometimes there's state limitations on certain labs. So there may be some limitations on certain labs, but other than that, I mean, talk to anybody. Very good. And where's the best way for people to find you? Where can they go if they want to consult? Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Everything's at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. Very good. Well, Will, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.